This E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast is presented by DKB Med Radio. Persons with cystic fibrosis have different pharmacokinetic parameters than the general population. This is due to both increased clearance of the drug as well as an increased volume of distribution. Because of that, it's important that persons with cystic fibrosis receive increased doses of beta-lactam antibiotics compared to the non-CF general population. Antibiotics, dosing, and CFTR. Welcome to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review. Two questions clinicians need to consider when prescribing antibiotics for their patients with CF. One is what kind of dosing adjustment might be required? And two, how is CFTR modulation affecting the microbiology of this patient's airway? That's what we're here to talk about today with Dr. Andrea Hahn, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Infectious Disease Specialist at Children's National Hospital and George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. For Dr. Hahn's disclosures and additional CME information, please go to our website, eCysticFibrosisReview.org, and click on the Volume 9, Issue 9 link. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of eCystic Fibrosis Review. Dr. Hahn, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. Let's start right off with our first learning objective, which is to describe the appropriate dosing regimen of specific beta-lactam antibiotics in persons with CF. So if you would please, Dr. Han, take us to the clinic with a patient scenario. The first case I wanted to talk to you about is a 15-year-old male patient who has a longstanding history of recurrent pulmonary exacerbations and respiratory cultures that grow methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, better known as MRSA. When he was eight years old, the patient suffered from DRESS syndrome, which can be a life-threatening drug hypersensitivity reaction when he was getting vancomycin therapy. Because of this history, linazolid has been the drug of choice for him for the last seven years whenever he has a pulmonary exacerbation. He was initially started on a course of oral linazolid one week ago for increased cough and sputum production, and he also had a decrease in his baseline lung function. Unfortunately, he has remained symptomatic, and you would like to admit him for IV antibiotic treatment. You discuss the case with your infectious disease colleagues, and they suggest that ceftaroline might be an option for your patient. Okay, so 15 years old, positive for respiratory MRSA, hypersensitive to vancomycin, and not responding well to linazolid. So my first question is, why ceftaroline? What makes it a good treatment option for this patient? So vancomycin really still remains the gold standard when you're thinking about treating MRSA infections in pediatrics. Linazolid is a good second option for two reasons. First, we have a lot of prior experience in people with cystic fibrosis. And second, it can be used in place of vancomycin and not cause drug-drug interaction if you're also treating gram-negative co-infection with a beta-lactam antibiotic. However, some of the toxicities that occur with prolonged linazolid use include bone marrow toxicity and paresthesias. So ceftaroline would be a good treatment option to consider because it's a fifth-generation beta-lactam that also treats MRSA. Success with this therapy has been reported in persons with cystic fibrosis but increased drug clearance and development of resistance have also been reported. Increased drug clearance and development of resistance, that's with ceftaroline. What do clinicians need to do to counter that? So to counter that, you want to make sure that you're using the right dose in persons with cystic fibrosis. And that's going to be a dose of 15 milligrams per kilogram, up to 600 milligrams given every eight hours. 
So when you're dosing ceftaroline in persons with cystic fibrosis, you're going to have to give an increased amount and also dose it more frequently than you would in a person who does not have cystic fibrosis. So the right dose in persons with cystic fibrosis is going to be 15 milligrams per kilogram, up to 600 milligrams every eight hours. And that's true whether you're a kid or you're an adult. The effect of dosing in people with CF is different than dosing that same drug in the general population. Do we know why? Persons with cystic fibrosis have different pharmacokinetic parameters than the general population. Two of those pharmacokinetic parameters are increased renal clearance, and so they get rid of the drug more quickly, and then also an increased volume of distribution. And that means that kind of the theoretical space that the drug distributes is larger than those who do not have cystic fibrosis. Because of those reasons, it's important to discuss dosing with either a CF-trained pharmacist or to consult a formulary or the literature to determine the best dosing regimen when you're trying to give antibiotics to persons with CF. There are many IV antibiotics that require increased dosing, especially beta-lactam antibiotics. Can you give us some specific examples? Yes, of course. So one of them that we commonly use is a drug called piperacillin tazobactam. In a person without cystic fibrosis, you might dose it every eight hours. But for people who have cystic fibrosis, it's important to dose it every four or every six hours to make sure you're getting the right amount of drug in the body. Another beta-lactam antibiotic that we commonly use is called ceftazidine. And this should be given every six hours instead of every eight hours. Or you can double the dose and still give it every eight hours. So specifically, if the FDA recommends giving 50 milligrams per kilogram per dose, in a person with cystic fibrosis, you'd want to give 100 milligrams per kilogram per dose every eight hours. Another commonly used beta-lactam antibiotic is meropenem. And that one also requires us to double the regular dose and still give it every eight hours. And so the dose that we would use in persons with cystic fibrosis would be 40 milligrams per kilogram per dose instead of the FDA-recommended 20 milligrams per kilogram per dose. What about continuous or extended infusion of beta-lactam antibiotics? When should clinicians consider it and why? So continuous infusion or extended infusion means that you give the dose over a longer period of time. This allows you to optimize what we call the time above the MIC, or the minimum inhibitory concentration of the bacteria against the antibiotic you're using. And so this is a pharmacodynamic parameter, and this is associated with bacterial killing. The clinical care guidelines from 2009 make a comment about continuous infusion, and they don't make a recommendation for it, but they do note that more studies linking pharmacodynamic parameters to clinical outcomes are needed. There's some recent studies that have been published that found an association with time above the MIC and improved pulmonary function. So one study looked at all beta-lactams being used, and a second study specifically looked at meropenem with a three-hour infusion. So in clinical practice, you would consider using either continuous or extended infusion when you're trying to treat an antibiotic-resistant bacteria or if the patient is critically ill or not responding to your antibiotic treatment. Well, thank you, Dr. Hahn, for that case and discussion. I want to return now to our learning objective, which is to describe the appropriate dosing regimen of specific beta-lactam antibiotics in persons with cystic fibrosis. So wrap it up for us, if you would, please. What are the key things our listeners need to know? Well, first, I just want to reiterate that persons with cystic fibrosis have altered pharmacokinetics of their antibiotics. This is due to both increased clearance of the drug as well as an increased volume of distribution. 
Because of that, it's important that persons with cystic fibrosis receive increased doses of beta-lactam antibiotics compared to the non-CF general population. When you're dosing ceftaroline, this should be used in select persons with CF for treatment of MRSA. And the dose you want to use should be 15 milligrams per kilogram with a max of 600 milligrams given every eight hours. The other beta-lactam antibiotics that require increased dosing in persons with cystic fibrosis include meropenem, which can be given as a dose of 40 milligrams per kilogram, a maximum of 2,000 milligrams every eight hours. Extended infusion of beta-lactam antibiotics like meropenem should be considered in persons who have antibiotic resistance. Thank you, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Andrea Hahn from George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences in just a moment. COVID-19. Some people have said it's changed everything. But one thing that hasn't changed is our need to get timely and, most importantly, accurate information. That's why we created our COVID-19 Keeping Up With a Moving Target programs. It's a weekly webinar and podcast series hosted by Dr. Paul Alwater. Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. It's updated information from the front lines of COVID-19 research and practice, and it's answers from the experts to your most important questions. COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target, is CME and CE accredited and provided free of charge. For more information, go to covid19.dkbmed.com. Thank you, and please stay safe. Welcome back to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Andrea Hahn, an infectious disease specialist at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C., about important considerations in the dosing regimens of specific beta-lactam antibiotics. Let's turn now to our second learning objective, identifying the bacterial pathogens that are most likely to be affected by CFDR modulator therapy. So once again, if you would please, Dr. Hahn, take us to the clinic. The second patient I wanted to talk to you about is an infant female, and she's born to a 29-year-old mother who had declined to have genetic screening performed as part of her prenatal workup. A few weeks later, the mother is notified by the pediatrician that her daughter's newborn screen was positive for possible cystic fibrosis and refers her to a pulmonologist for further evaluation. A sweat test revealed elevated sweat chloride, and the genetic testing was positive for a G551D CFTR mutation. In addition to your regular guidance to new parents of children with cystic fibrosis, you discuss with the mother that the infant will be eligible for CFTR modulation therapy with Ivacaftor. Ivacaftor lowers the sweat chloride levels, increases weight gain, and improves lung function. Some studies have also shown that Ivacaftor can affect the microbiology of the airway in persons with cystic fibrosis. Ivacaftor affecting the microbiology of the CF airway. How does that translate into patient benefit? Does it reduce the prevalence of Pseudomonas aeruginosa? What does the evidence say, Dr. Hahn? So the initial study published was called the GOAL study, and it looked at 151 patients who were receiving Ivacaftor. This used U.S. registry data, and they looked at the odds of Pseudomonas aeruginosa positivity in the second year compared to the first year, and they found a reduction by 35%. There's also been several smaller studies that have shown a decreased annual prevalence of Pseudomonas aeruginosa infection in persons who were receiving Ivacaftor compared to those who were not. There's also been a large longitudinal study of Ivacaftor that was reported where they looked at treated patients and comparators who were followed for five years. And this study used both U.S. and U.K. registry data. And this validated the previous findings. 
The U.S. study looked at 635 IVACAFTA-treated patients and 1,874 comparators, while the U.K. study looked at 247 IVACAFTA-treated patients and 1,230 comparators. They found there was better preserved lung function, a significant reduction in pulmonary exacerbations, and a significantly decreased relative risk of Pseudomonas aeruginosa infection. Any other significant findings related to Pseudomonas aeruginosa infection in patients receiving Ivacaftor? Yes, so the first finding was there was an increased time to acquisition of Pseudomonas aeruginosa in persons who had not been previously infected. There was also a finding of clearance in persons who had been previously infected with Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And lastly, clearance was related to both younger age and increased response to modulator therapy as evidenced by their sweat chloride. Besides Pseudomonas aeruginosa, what other common pathogens might be affected by Ivacaftor use? Two of the studies I mentioned before showed a decreased prevalence of a fungus called Aspergillus. There was also one study that showed a decreased prevalence of Staph aureus. The studies also looked at Burkholderia cepatia complex, which is another problematic pathogen in persons with CF. However, they didn't find any evidence of effect. However, in pathogens like Burkholderia, where there's a low baseline prevalence, these prior studies may not have enough power to detect significant changes. So we'll have to see what's reported in larger studies. That's Ivacaftor for patients like the infant you presented with the G551D CFTR mutation. Let's talk about the Lumacaftor-Ivacaftor combination for treating people with F508-DEL CFTR mutations. There was a large study of Lumacaftor-Ivacaftor, and it did not show an impact on microbiology. However, the study also showed a less robust impact than Ivacaftor on pulmonary function and hospitalization rates. This may indicate that those persons with F508 deletion CFTR mutations who were receiving Lumacaftor-Ivacaftor did not have the benefit of as much improvement in their CFTR function compared to those with the G551D CFTR mutations who received Ivacaftor. And what about triple combination CFTR modulator therapy? That's a relatively new treatment. What's known about its effects on airway microbiology at this point? The PROMISE study is ongoing of persons who are on triple combination therapy, and the primary outcomes will be changes in sweat chloride and FEV1. The secondary outcomes will be changes in weight, BMI, and CFQR at 6 and 12 months. With these studies, we'll also be able to evaluate the impact of triple therapy on microbiology. Thank you for bringing us that case in discussion, Dr. Han. I want to switch gears on you now for just a moment. In your newsletter issue, you reminded us that after a pulmonary exacerbation, somewhere around 25% of people with cystic fibrosis do not recover all the way to their baseline function. Give us your expert opinion, doctor. What questions do we need answered to better optimize antibiotic treatment? The first knowledge gap is still understanding the role of antibiotic resistance in treatment of pulmonary exacerbations. Early studies really showed no effect on outcome, but there's a lot of limitations in concurrent susceptibility testing that still need to be answered. The second knowledge gap is the role of the microbiome. So there may be other bacteria in the airway that we would not normally consider pathogens, including anaerobes, that may be playing a role in antibiotic treatment response. The last knowledge gap is the role of therapeutic drug monitoring of beta-lactam antibiotics. This is something we routinely do for aminoglycosides and vancomycins in persons with CF, and it may allow us to broaden our approach to provide more personalized treatment when treating pulmonary exacerbations. Well, thank you, doctor. 
Let's wrap things up now by returning to our learning objective, identifying the bacterial pathogens that are most likely to be affected by CFTR modulator therapy. What are the key things our listeners should take away from our discussion? Well, first, the annual prevalence of Pseudomonas aeruginosa has been shown to decrease after initiation of Ivacaftor in multiple studies. An increase in the time to acquisition of Pseudomonas aeruginosa has also been demonstrated in those who are started on Ivacaftor. Clearance of Pseudomonas aeruginosa infection after starting Ivacaftor therapy is associated with response to CFTR modulation as measured by sweat chloride. The prevalence of other pathogens that may be affected by CFTR modulation include Staphylococcus aureus and Aspergillus. The PROMISE study is ongoing, and that's going to evaluate the effects of triple combination therapy in persons with F508 deletion CFTR mutations. Dr. Andrea Hahn from Children's National Hospital and George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences, thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise in this eCystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. For eCystic Fibrosis Review, I'm Bob Busker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at ecf.dkbmed.com. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by educational grants from Vertex Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, AbbVie Incorporated, GEC USA, and Mylan. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is copyright with all rights reserved by DKB Med, LLC. Thank you for listening.